Well, we will go ahead and get started with our Wednesday night Bible study. Thank everybody for being here. Good to see all y'all. I've asked Jonathan if he would open us up in a word of prayer before we get started. So let's, let's go ahead and pray. Everybody should be able to hear me all right. We've been tweaking with it for, I don't know, about an hour every day so far. But about got it figured out. <laughs> I look more hopeful than Van does, so hopefully you guys can hear me. <laughs> right, right. We'll get there eventually. It's work in progress, as they say. So tonight, uh, we're going to keep studying out of Colossians. So you want to go ahead and navigate there in your Bibles. We'll be in Colossians. And I wanted to <clears throat> recap a little bit because we're getting towards the end of chapter one. Uh, I don't know if we'll finish it tonight, but we'll cover kind of the main section of it, really the heart of chapter one. But I had a couple questions that I wanted us to think about just to sort of reflect on what we've gotten with so far. There's a map. Totally knew that slide was there. So yeah, here's the, here's the whole outline. for the. Remember, we've talked about the introduction and we've talked about uh, just the way he greets them in the first few verses there. Uh, the part we're going to study tonight is part of what they call the theological expression. And they call this section that we're going to look at the Christ hymn. And we'll see what that means here in a little bit. And uh, just sort of recap what we talked about that first week, uh, looking at the major themes of the letter, which are the connectedness of the church and, and how this is a very personal letter for Paul, uh, how he knows them very intimately and he really talks about, just he really emphasizes that the church needs to be connected. We will really hit heavy on what it means that to, to follow the exalted Lord and Christ. And then later on in the letter, we'll also see him apply that to the relationships and our character and sort of how we live our lives. So I had a couple questions that I want us to look at. Um, if you remember last week, we, we talked about how from really verse 9 all the way to about verse 14, which I think is right around where we left off, Paul talks about what he has prayed for. And we, over the last two weeks, we really highlighted some of the different things that he prays for and how he prays. And we mentioned a few things, that like how he prays really selflessly. He prays really focusing on the spiritual. And we just talked about a lot of things. And so one of the questions I had, just to kind of get us started off, as we look over, like I said, verse uh, really 9 through 14 of Colossians, is how can we pray as Paul prayed? He's really quiet up until everybody else gets quiet. It's kind of funny how that works. So how can we pray as Paul prays in Colossians? Can't go wrong there, right? Yeah. Even as Jesus said, you know, don't throw up empty words and phrases, but to pray devoutly, to pray from the heart. Sure. Yes. That was one of the things I think might have been last week, might have been two weeks ago. Um, just in his phrasing where he says, you know, we have not ceased to pray for you. Definitely, we can pray continually. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and those really go hand in hand. But yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Is I think. It's definitely one of those things, the less often you do it, the more weird it's going to feel, right? Just sort of like, am I, you know, and I remember being a kid, like, am I just sort of throwing thoughts at the windshield? What am I doing here? And uh, this really, to, to dovetail with another topic we talked about, that's one of those where the more you study what the will of God is, the more you do the will of God, the better you're going to understand the will of God, which is easier to do it, and it kind of, you know, kind of cyclical in that. But yeah, the more you do it, the better you're kind of going to understand, I think, how he wants us to pray. And... Uh, I think it changes your mindset too. Just this is a different topic, but I really feel like the more you pray, the more it will change your mindset about prayer. Really, um, yeah. Yeah. Pray for wisdom and understanding. Definitely. Yeah, those are all good answers. I got a few questions here, so we'll roll roll along. Walking worthy was a big, big theme of last week. If you'll notice in verse. 10, it says that you may walk worthy of the Lord. And I think we talked about this already, but it bears repeating. How can we walk worthy of the sacrifice Christ made for us? Yeah. Both succinct, pretty solid to the point answers. <laughs> Do His will, live correctly. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's really, to, I mean, that cuts right to the quick of it, but uh, I think we've spent a good bit of time either last week or the week before just talking about just that means that what we believe about Jesus and what we know about him should impact our actions, you know. And it means we should uh, keep that kind of thing in mind, I think, you know, just the weight of what it means to behave a certain way as a Christian. So, we've touched on this a little bit. But Paul talks a lot about understanding God's will. What are some ways we can try to better understand the will of God for us? Yeah, you, you bring up a lot of good points there. Um, Study, start by studying, trying to understand what you're reading, and then make application to it. You know, don't let it be just something you do to check a box, but try and, and I, it, trust me, I, I get it. I've talked to a lot, a lot of people my age, and like, I have a hard time reading the Bible. Like, the Bible's hard. It's like, well, yes, you know, there's hard parts, certainly, and, but that's kind of up there with prayer, that the, the more you spend time reading it, the more it kind of, some sense will arise out of it, you know, um, That and maybe, if you, if you don't spend a lot of time reading the Bible, maybe like the 18th century King James, maybe don't start there. Um, unless you're someone who just throws around these and thous and thys and hastithists in your daily life. You know, I'm joking, but if you have a hard time understanding your Bible, go find your Bible you can understand. Like, <laughs> I think I had a, a minister one time, or a homiletics teacher, he said, the best translation of the Bible is one you'll actually read. And I think I'd kind of stand by that outside of, you know, just getting a 
precious moments storybook Bible, but um, certainly reading, reading and trying to understand His will. <laughs> That's a fun question. Um, I always feel like if I was like really, really devoted, I would learn Greek since the Bible was written in Greek, but I've not done that. Um, Different ones for different stuff. In my experience, the best one is whatever most of the people I'm talking to are using. I've learned the hard way that if I'm reading out of one and the rest of you are reading pretty much out of another, this is going to be a very confusing class. Um, they're mostly the same, but some of the newer ones focus more on... Ask me after class. This is not a short answer question. Sorry. I would say, get back to me after class because that's like a 15-minute answer, and we would get nowhere in Colossians and everyone else would be asleep. Yeah. No, and, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to disparage one or the other, but for me, like, the old King James is really hard for me to read. And when someone sits down with me who's my age or younger, and they're like, I have a hard time reading my Bible. And I'm like, well, yeah, because your Bible's written in a language that died 100 years ago. <laughs> Nobody talks like that anymore. And if you can understand it, more power to you. You are more devout and righteous than I. But as for me, I, I don't comprehend a word of what I read when it's 18th century English. Um, and so that was just my point, is if you don't understand it, you know, find you one you understand. But if you do, more power to you, in all seriousness. Um, New King James is a lot easier than Old King James, in my experience. <laughs> there are, I would say, if you walk into a store, uh, you know, it, whether it's Walmart, Mardell's, Christian Bookstore, whatever... By and large, I can think of like literally one exception, and that is probably the Message Bible. But otherwise, the major translations that are out there, whether the NIV, American Standard, New Revised Standard, Christian Standard, Holman Christian, any of the ones you find in a major bookstore, they're, I mean, they're pretty darn accurate um, in, in the sense of they really do try to get a, a perspective from like a wide variety of scholars who aren't necessarily all of one particular denomination. Um, Boy, y'all don't want to talk about Colossians at all. I could do, I could do, y'all found something I could go on for like, I should have asked if you want the five minute or five hour answer before you asked that, before I tried to answer it. Because um, I, could, I could talk a lot about that. But the ones that sound different, what they typically are, um, the older ones like the King James, they're truer to the, um, the word for word. But sometimes if you go word for word from one language to another, it actually doesn't communicate the idea as much. So if you're reading one that just sounds really different phrase-wise, it's probably more trying to communicate the same idea instead of a word-for-word. Word. I think they call it thought-for-thought. Thought. Does that make sense? Um, th that's why you can get them to sound so radically different. Just the structure of the language is pretty, pretty, pretty different from English. Um, and there's even, and we'll talk about this a little bit tonight, but there's even words that don't really have a one-to-one -one English to Greek translation. And a big, big issue with that is the word church. Um, the way we translate ecclesia to church and how that kind of leads people into thinking more about the building than necessarily the people is kind of a big issue. But unless I can get the nine major English translators to change their mind about it, I'm probably not going to. Um, all that to say, if you're in a normal bookstore, they're all pretty good. I, I can really only think of one or two that I would just be like, that's a problematic translation. And it's, they're very rare, and you would know it because they only sell them in certain denominationally branded bookstores. Does that make enough sense?
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if y'all want to, we'll get together on a Saturday night or an early, early Sunday morning. We'll have a three-hour seminar on textual variances because I'm, I'm serious. Y'all are like right in my wheelhouse. Like I got high-level stuff ready to go all night if we want to do that. But I think it'd put nine out of ten of us to sleep, and I don't blame you. <laughs> um, someone remind us what we were talking about. <laughs> um, we got off on such a tangent, the projector went to sleep. Yes, walking worthily, studying the word as part of walking worthily, watching our actions, understanding God's will. Um, I want to get to this last one, because this is where we left off last week, and I think this is a big, big deal. It really encompasses, I would say, verse 1 through 14 so far. Uh, in the section we read last week, Paul ends with this idea... Um, in verse 13, that he has conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son of the love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we looked at several different verses, and we talked about how Jesus tells his disciples, we are the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is in your midst. The kingdom is among you. And so I wanted to revisit this question we talked about last week, and that is, what does it mean for us to be the kingdom Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's hard to put it better than we have already. But the reason I just asked this question is because, I mean, I, I really want us to see that a major, major part of Paul's letters to these churches is acting in line with how you believe and believing in line with, you know, how you behave and things like that. They really, really go hand in hand because if you're not doing that, a lot of problems start arising, you know, and that's what he talks about. He says, you know, the church starts falling apart. People outside the church get confused and they get lost. No one gets helped. And we're not really following God's plan. Um, so, yeah, all that. So I wanted to, I was going to talk, I really did was going to talk about translation for like two seconds because um, there's this section in Colossians called, from 15 to 20, that some have called the Christ him, and I just wanted to show you how one of them it kind of structures it out almost like we would see in Psalms, uh, because they believe he's, he's referencing really a, a common uh, I don't want to say creed, but like a common hymn or song, that was a, a sort of circular statement of faith that was already around in the church. Um, and before I get too much talking about this, someone go ahead and read for us. Someone read for us, let's say, verse 15 through 17 of Colossians 1. If someone could read that for us. Thank you. So if you'll notice, um, and this is why I say it's broken up differently if you've got subheadings or different sort of the way this is constructed, but from verse 15 to about verse 20, 
um, Paul takes this second and he just starts talking about Jesus and he starts talking about his who he is and his power that he has and the supremacy of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. And, and several scholars have kind of put two and two together and they've said, you know, this this actually really looks like Paul is quoting something here. And uh, we'll see when we get into this and sort of break it down line by line uh, why that why exactly they think that. Um, but one of them is really just. Because when you break it up and you look at it, it looks more like poetry, if that makes sense. And that's why some Bibles you'll see it sort of uh, broken up this way, almost like you would part of Psalms or Proverbs, instead of aligned in the body, in the text body. But in terms of how does that inform how we read it, well, it's, uh, it's important to, I guess, uh, to me to recognize that there were certain statements of faith, really, um, I know we shy away from the word creed, and we talk about how we don't have any creed but the Bible, and I, I get all that. But there are certain statements of faith that were already emerging in the early church that basically said, if you were a Christian, you believe this. And we would hope uh, the, the power and the divinity of Christ is something anybody who calls himself a Christian would be on board with, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we can have a debate about a lot of things, but... What else are you going to call yourself if you don't believe in Christ? Then the word Christian just becomes kind of maybe ill-fit. <laughs> so already um, there was a very clear, established few points on uh, what they believed. And we'll see as we look at verse 15 through 17 uh, that Paul is really, really emphasizing the supremacy and divinity of Jesus. Um, if you think about the time, just the timeline here, we are really only a few years removed from Jesus' actual crucifixion and ascension. So you're talking to people who, if they did not see Jesus firsthand, they knew people who did. They remember Jesus. His, what he did was so radical that it's still very much in the cultural uh, memory banks, if you will. And, you know, depending on what generation you're from, whether it's 9-11, JFK, Elvis Presley getting... My grandmother, that's her big one. She remembers when Elvis died. But you have those generations sort of defining moments that everyone's like, yep, I, I know about that. I, I remember how that made me feel, how that changed sort of my worldview or whatever, how old I was. So we are still hot on the heels of Jesus' ministry and what he did. And it was so radical that everyone in this area, in, in sort of that region of the world, was very aware of Jesus as a person, if that makes sense. They, they know who Jesus of Nazareth was. They heard, they might not have heard the full gospel like you and I have it, certainly, but they heard at least bits and pieces, you know, word got out. How many times do you look at the gospels and it said, a great crowd followed them? I mean, those, those people went somewhere after Jesus left, right? And they probably went and told their friends and their neighbors and their hair cutter and, you know, all that stuff. So word gets out, and already we are seeing um, some pretty serious uh, statements of faith being made. In terms of, like I said, they knew Jesus as the person, and Paul wants them to know who Jesus as the Lord and Savior is. And that's why I'm saying all that. Does that make... i got to figure out why I keep doing that. But they certainly knew who, who Jesus the person was, and they heard what he did. They know he lived physically on earth. And Paul was trying to get them to see that, like, look, this, this Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. For by him all... Things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And he goes on and on. He's listing these things to say, like, 
Do you realize who this is we are dealing with, who this is we are talking about? This is probably a, a whole sermon worthy of another time. But if you've ever done a serious study out of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, there's these things called the faithful sayings of the pastoral epistles. And there's five or six different times in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus that Paul says, this is a faithful saying. And that phraseology is kind of very similar. And again, I know we shy away from this word, but very similar to what we would almost call a, a statement of faith or a creed in the sense that he's telling you, this is something Christians should believe. And that's where we get statements like, this is a faithful saying that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Uh, again, I understand that we have people who might not agree with everything you and I believe, but man, even the Bible tells us there's got to be some things that are not negotiable. Um, and one of those very core, very, very core beliefs is obviously who Jesus was and what he did. Um, that he lived as a human and that he died for our sins. And, and these sort of statements that Paul makes, that he is the image of, of the invisible God. So that first one, the image of the invisible God, the word there is really uh, not just like a painting or a picture or a portrait, but the word image actually really means something like an I where we get icon or a likeness. Um, one concordance kind of defined this as the real and essential embodiment, like not a copycat. When we think of an image of something, you know, sometimes we think of like, well, a, a reproduction, right? A Xerox copy. Well, Paul says, when he says he is the image, he says he is the likeness, he is the form of God. Um, someone, someone this word is used a couple different times. Someone read Philippians 2, 6, and 7 for us. It's the same kind of language that's used there. In Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7. So I think I heard you use it twice, and that probably is still in verse 6. But he says, in the very nature of God. Um, that, that's really the same word that Paul is using here to say that, you know, Jesus is a representation of God in human form. A very famous, very well-known, at least to the Jews, uh, prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 says, he, uh, they will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And of course, that's what I think both Mark and Matthew reference uh, around the time of Jesus' birth because they, they knew that the prophets spoke of this man who would be God among us, God on earth. And I say that because that means that Jesus' actions, his whole life, his whole ministry can really be viewed as divine instruction. Um, we have all these different writings from you know Peter, Paul, Timothy, all these different guys. But if you read the Bible, um, none of those men were fully perfect. If we read about Saul before he was Paul, we certainly would have called him a flawed individual. Even Peter uh, is putting his foot in his mouth about every other page if you go read through the Gospels. He denies Jesus three times, right? Peter, we would consider some of what they did as inspired in the contributions to Scripture and in their writings. 
But Jesus was on such a different level that everything he did was fully divine, was fully inspired by God. If you want something that will keep you up at night, I said, somebody asked me one time, they said, if Jesus was a carpenter, does that mean he made really good chairs? That's not even a joke. I don't have an answer. I'm sorry. Like I said, it's the kind of thing that will keep you up. What did the chairs that Jesus made look like? It's the kind of questions some of my teenagers would ask me when I was teaching the Bible class. What did you say? Ah, see, you're right. No, yes, that's the, that's the catch. Yes. Joseph was the carpenter, so they assume he was by trade, but he was also at the temple at like 12, so we know if he had much time for chairs. Um, so Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that means all of his actions uh, can inform us on how we should live our lives. All of what he did is instruction for how we could live our lives. Um, and this is not just about the external, but the internal also. You know, Jesus was filled with God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we are called, at least to some degree, to live the same way. When we put on Christ in baptism, we, it says how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We get added to the church. We know all those phrases that go along with the act of baptism. And even the verse we were just looking at, I think we were talking about this Sunday night, that we are partakers in that divine nature, obviously to a lesser extent. But we, we share being filled with the Spirit just as He was. The next sort of line there is that he was the firstborn over all creation. This is another interesting word because obviously uh, he was not first in sort of time, in sort of a chronological sense, but that, that word really has a, uh, the primary meaning for the word there for firstborn is really one of power or rank or priority. And um, we see this really a lot in the Old Testament with uh, stories like Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. Um, Joseph and his brothers, David. How many times does God not pick the firstborn son? And it's weird if you think about it because the Jews were a very, uh, I think it's primogeniture is like the word, but they were very, the firstborn male was believed to be the leader, was believed to be the strongest, was given the double portion, the birthright, things like that. But all the time, God would pick differently than what they expected. There's always like this plot twist and, of course, we think of the very famous line where it said, because, in, uh, in Samuel, Samuel 12, that the Lord does not see as man sees, for the Lord sees the heart. And oftentimes, he calls uh, David the force burn among men. He calls Moses. This, this same word is kind of used in Exodus at that time. But it's this idea that he is not firstborn in the sense of time. That would obviously, that designation would belong to Adam. But he is the the first among men. And actually, if you, if you really dig into this, there's this idea in a lot of the, the letters, a lot of New Testament Scripture, that Jesus is begotten of the Lord. Um, he, he, he is the one created by God. And they, they make this distinction between sometimes between the fact that, well, you and I are born of flesh, and certainly we are created by God in the sense of that God is over all creation, but we are born of flesh. You know, I have a mother and father. Just as everyone in here does, whether they're living or deceased, we are all born of flesh. But Jesus was born of God, was truly born of God, was begotten from God. Questions so far? Pause here between verse 13 and 14.
I mentioned this, but Hebrews 1, 6, and 7, and John 1, 14 would be other places that talk about the Messiah being begotten, or the firstborn, or the first, uh, first begotten son of God. That would support just that idea we're talking about. We don't really have time to flip there. But uh, Hebrews 1, 6, and John 1, 14 talk about that as well. So he goes on to say, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And he uses all these different phrases. He says, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created for him and through him. And this is really, 14 is really carrying out that idea that we introduced in 13. And this really emphasizes Jesus as like the supreme geopolitical social power. Um, there, there's two things Paul does a lot in this section, and that is he uses a lot of these stock phrases that are in their culture that really just are just different ways of saying all creation. He says visible or invisible, thrones or dominion, um, and they're, they're like figures of speech. They're just different ways of saying everything. If Paul was born in the American South, he would have said, and the kitchen sink, right? <laughs> I don't literally mean go pull your sink out of the wall. I'm just saying everybody was there. Everybody and their mother was at the cookout last weekend. And so Paul is quoting kind of these stock phrases that the Greeks had is just the way of talking about things. And another thing he's doing, and we'll see this more later on, he's, he's using a lot of those, those idioms, those figures of speech, but he's also going to use a lot of titles that at the time would have been reserved for Caesar. And that's because there is a very clear political statement being made by Paul here, and that is that you cannot worship Caesar as God and also worship Christ as king. Um, without getting too much down a historical rabbit hole, a very critical part of the, the culture that the early church arose in uh, engaged in not only pagan worship, but also leader worship. They regularly revered Caesar as sort of the son of God or descendant of God or representation of God on earth. And Paul uses a lot of these phrases that they would have applied to Caesar, such as the fact that like, he is before all things, to say that, no, Caesar is not before all things. Jesus is before all things. And he says that because, kind of like we were talking about earlier, how we need to walk worthy and our actions need to be influenced by the Word and we need to understand the will of God. Paul is saying, look, if you were going to be a Christian and you were going to live in this culture, you cannot worship Caesar. You cannot worship idols as the world does. And so there's a very, it might not sound like it to us, but there's a very explicit first century political message in this and that is just that you know Caesar is not king Caesar is not in control God is and even though we don't worship Caesar there's probably a lesson in that for us in the 21st century yeah I mean that's definitely a whole thing through that too Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we see, uh, I think it's Peter who when he, in, in Acts, someone comes to, when he has the Cornelius with the vision, he says, you know, don't worship me, I'm a man. But yeah, no, you're right. There's, there's attributes and there's qualities about Jesus that belong to him and him exclusively. This would really go uh, very well with Romans 13. If you're familiar with that, on the Romans 13, where Paul goes on and on about rulers and authorities, um, someone read for us. Actually, we'll we'll turn there real quick. Someone read Romans 13, one through three. I was going to skip over it, but we'll we'll take a second here. 
Romans 13, 1 through 3. Thank you. So, does this mean rulers on earth always do exactly what we believe the will of God to be? We'll chase this rabbit for a little bit here. So, the best example for this would be Pharaoh. And if you look all the way back at Pharaoh, it talks about how God used Pharaoh. God hard- at one point, it's the, the very sort of controversial phrase that he hardened his heart against what was happening. Um, Paul gives us this reminder that the people who are in charge are only in charge at the will, or we could even say the grace, of God. And the lesson there is much like, I, I think, the command to honor your father and mother is not that you do as the government always tells you to do, but that there is, and really this was really, verse 1 and 2, as he read for us, verse 1 and 2 are very, very well explained by verse 3, in the sense that he says, look, doing this reflects well on you, it reflects well on your community, on the Christian community. Um, I mean, obviously, if, the, if, if we were commanded to do, or, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, there's numerous examples of, of figures from Scripture defining authority when what authority asks us to do flies in the face of how God asks us to conduct ourselves, certainly. Uh, there's there's no, no question on that front. But, well, I won't even say but. I'll just say period. That's always true. Do the will of God first. But remember that the authorities who are on earth no matter how much power they seem to have, no matter how much control they seem to have, no matter how bad things get, uh, and again, just by way of reminder, people were fed the lions and put into a furnace for not worshiping idols. So maybe calibrate what our level of bad is, right, if you live in 21st century America. Look, God is still in control. And, and I know that this, especially Romans 13, has got a lot of attention over the last couple of years with shutdowns, mandates, and things of that nature. But Paul is not writing from some like cushy social status where he got to sit in a pew and worship publicly either. I mean, the Christians were literally meeting in homes because of the social pressure to worship the pagan gods and to worship Caesar and to worship idols. So they are literally meeting in house churches. And it's the same people who, who Paul says, yes, remember... The rulers and authorities only serve at the will of God. And that's not to say that they do the will of God, but they only hold that position for as long as God wants them to. And even if, they, even if that means things get hard for the church, if that means things get hard for you, if that means you have to adapt, if that means you have to sometimes be fearful or sometimes, I don't even want to say worry, because Paul would say, don't worry. If they want to kill you for being a Christian, okay, be a Christian. And I think sometimes we get a little carried away because we're kind of used to having it one way, and the moment it's not, we're like, wait a second, this is terrible. No Christian has ever been treated this way. Okay, 
Yeah, if you're counting like the last 30 years, you're probably right. If you want to remember the other 1,970 years. The worse plants get, the stronger we get. I firmly, I can't, that's one of those things, I cannot quote you chapter, book, and verse. But if you look at the history of the church under just the way the world has treated Christians, it is when governments came down on them the harshest that the church flourished. And I think if I was to tell you, and I mean... How do we keep our yeah. bodies in shape? We exercise it. That's true. So running uphill does us more good <laughs> than going downhill. So we a lot of wisdom to that. But God is with us. And that don't mean we're going to, not going to die. We're going to die. God says so. Yeah. Well, and I think we just, we get a little, I don't really know which way to go with this, but I think we ascribe probably too much, we think too much of certain authorities and powers. We're like, oh, if this happens, the world is just going to end, the churches are going to close, and the world is going to be set on fire. Well, y'all, like, I'm not even 30, and I remember when, like, everyone was telling us the world was getting, like, three times, okay? Remember 1999, I remember 2012, and I remember 2020. And, uh, you know, for the most part, I'm still here. <laughs> I mean, and I'm one of the younger people in here. I'm some of you that, I'm sure many of you that are older than I could tell you the number of times every decade someone has said, oh, if you look at the Bible, very, I wish I could remember, the late great planet Earth, this very, very popular evangelist, very famously said, that, like, well, I could just not possibly see the world going on much longer than 1982. Yes, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yes. I mean, yeah, there's, there's two things. I think there are certainly cities and areas where the wise thing to do for everyone's health, and this even happened to our congregation at one point, was to not meet at the building for a certain period of time. Just for example, even though we were in a small church, the church I came from, okay, well, our whole church was made up of about like six households. Guess what? When three of them got COVID, it didn't really make a lot of a sense for the other three of us to meet because we had all seen them last Sunday. Um, but on the flip side, if you're in southern rural Tennessee, I don't ever remember the county commissioners, the government, or sheriffs coming door to door and locking up the church. This is kind of one of those things where I'm saying we start to think the people who are in control are probably in a bit more than they are, and we start to think our situation is a lot harder than it actually is. Because again, the church started in homes. when being, And it's, there's been hundreds of years of periods of time Children born, raised, and died in societies where Christianity was completely and totally illegal and punishable by death. And you know what? There were still Christians. 
To your question, Mike, I think the truth is we've had it so easy for so many decades that the moment it got even the tiniest bit inconvenient, everyone threw up their hands and said, well, I can't go to church. It's not safe. But the football stadium, Walmart, and the car wash is fine. That is an excellent reference, yes. Yeah, he said, we cannot, we cannot but do the will of God. And there's several times in Acts where they say, you can't do this anymore. If you do this, we're going to throw you in jail. They go, um, okay. And they basically say, you know, we're, I'm not telling you, we're not, you let us out, we're going to keep doing it. And they keep getting broken out of jail. <laughs> um, I just think we sometimes think the powers that be are in a little bit more power than they actually are. At the end of the day, God is in control. That's probably, I'm getting close to it, time-wise there. Any other questions or comments before we have to recess? I'm not going to pretend to follow a word of what you just said, but I do know what he says about two sparrows, and I'll lean on that. (laughs) Just in time.